Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Unfortunately, it has happened again, <laughs> this thing where we have recorded a podcast a few days early and then something happens in between the time that we recorded and when we post it and that impacts what we were talking about. Uh, so this week on the podcast, we have uh, a wonderful special guest, Jennifer Granick, um, who is the director of civil liberties at uh, Stanford Law. Uh, and she's written a book recently called American Spies that looks very closely at things having to do with NSA surveillance and the like. And so we have this whole discussion keyed up for you to listen to about NSA surveillance that we recorded last week on Wednesday. Uh, two days later, on Friday, uh, it suddenly came out first from uh, Charlie Savage at the New York Times, and then from the NSA itself, that they were changing the way they do a particular collection of information, one of the most controversial, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the about collection of the Section 702 program. So uh, what we're going to do is first, we're going to let you listen to what we recorded before that information came out. And we certainly talk about Section 702 and that program and uh, issues around it being renewed by the end of this year. Uh, and of course, lots of other topics as well. And then uh, after that is done, if you stay tuned and listen, we have Jennifer come back in something that we just recorded uh, a little while ago, in which we talk some more for another 20 minutes or so about uh, the news that came out on Friday and was discussed over the weekend about the NSA changing the way they handle this kind of collected information. So uh, that's an explanation for uh, how this is going to work and why we don't mention that in the first 35 to 40 minutes or so of the podcast. But uh, stay tuned for after that and we'll uh, jump back in and have that discussion as well. And with that, uh, off we go to the regular podcast. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. I'm assuming that if you listen to the Tech Dirt podcast, you have at least some familiarity with the nature of the surveillance state these days, especially in this post-Snowden uh, post era. Uh, you have had to have heard at least something <laughs> about the various programs that the NSA has used to conduct surveillance on both Americans and, well, everyone else. Uh, one of the most incredible parts, I think, of the revela revelation uh, of Snowden's documents was just how intertwined the technology revolution and the NSA had become. Now, we're obviously, I think, big supporters of technology and innovation and everything that it provides around here. Uh, but at the same time, uh, many of the ways in which the NSA has piggybacked on those innovations has to give us at least some pause about the impact on our own privacy and basic civil liberties that we supposedly have under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Jennifer Granick, uh, who is the director of civil liberties at Stanford uh, Stanford's Law School, uh, recently came out with an excellent book called American Spies that does 
what I thought was an astoundingly thorough job exploring the past, present, and potential future of the surveillance state and how it interacts with the technology world. Uh, the book is, I think, an absolute must if you want to understand what the NSA is really doing, especially since there's really a ton of misinformation and confusion out there. And, and I think the book makes it very, very clear and is a very careful and, and thorough explanation of, of what's going on. So today on the podcast, uh, we have Jennifer Granick here to discuss her book and what's going on in the surveillance world. And there's so much to discuss. I, I feel that we could go on for a few hours, but I'll, I'll try to limit it to a, a more reasonable amount. Uh, we also have our usual co-host here, Dennis Yang. Uh, but obviously, let's start with Jennifer. So uh, first, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And let's start with sort of a basic question, uh, since I know you certainly have been paying attention to all this stuff for, for many, many years. Um, how, how much do you think that the, the Snowden documents, when they came out, did, how much did they really reveal to you? You know, I, I learned a lot from the Snowden documents. And, um, you know, I think there's always those people out there who are like, we already knew this, you know, it's cool to be jaded. Um, but, right. <laughs> but, but we learned a lot from the Snowden documents. There's, there's no question that um, the information that's been uh, disclosed and reported in newspapers around the world is telling us stuff that we did not know about the extent of the surveillance state, the way that the United States government had interpreted laws, um, and all kinds of things that we needed to know. And it really was um, disheartening to learn how far afield our government had gone from what even surveillance um, experts' worst nightmares were. Yeah, I, I mean, it was it was interesting because there certainly had been talk beforehand, right, about different things that were going on, and you had people like Senator Wyden, for example, who, you know, sort of were trying to warn us, but it was it right. was it was still sort of like picking through the tea leaves, right, and sort of trying to figure out what, what exactly he was warning us about. Absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that um, that uh, Glenn Greenwald disclosed from the Snowden documents was the uh, dragnet collection of Americans' telephone records, right? And it was taking place under a law called Section Two Fifteen. Civil libertarians like myself had been very worried about Section 215 for years, but we called it the library records <laughs> provision because yeah. our worst case scenario was that the NSA might be, you know, picking up records about what books people read. It, we yeah. never, in a, you know, crossed our mind that they would be using that provision to collect every phone call record from every American that they possibly could. Yeah, no, I remember that too. And it was, you know, like the libraries actually had been very vocal about that. And that was the example that was used over and over again, that, you know, the government could go and request every, you know, every library book that, that someone took out. And we thought that, that was a great privacy validation. But uh, yeah, the, the fact that it was then used to, to like, you know, on a daily basis or whatever, collect every, <laughs> you know, every information about who called whom and, and for how long and uh, all that was, was, was a... Uh, you know, definitely a, a big surprise. And yeah. there have been, there have certainly been questions too about, um, you know, whether or not it was used for, for other stuff beyond that, that we, we just didn't know about, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're still wondering about the extent to which the government collects our financial records. Um, the government collected our, um, our internet browsing history records. So internet transactional data under a different statute 
um, until about 2011 when they stopped, but we don't know that they're not collecting that same kind of data under other legal provisions, either from inside the country or from outside the country. So there's there's still quite a bit that we don't know, um, but this window into the phone records collection via Section 215 um, has been a real eye-opener about exactly how vigilant and how careful we have to be um, when we are crafting surveillance capabilities for government and when we're policing and overseeing them. So uh, there are a bunch of different directions I could go here, and, and I'm sort of debating which which path to go down. <laughs> but but you know one of the things that 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 people who sort of supported or defended the Section 215 program in particular was that they would say that it's it was just metadata, right? It, it wasn't collecting the 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 content, the, right? Yeah. The content of of the calls or 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 like it's uh, connection info, right? right? Right, and so you know they would say things like that's you know under you know various precedents in the past like that's okay and that's not private information um what's your response to that i guess so just you know in terms of normatively you can tell an immense amount about a particular person by their calling records. Um, in one case, uh, Professor Ed Felton from Princeton pointed out that, you know, if you see that somebody called a suicide hotline or an addiction hotline or a donate to a um, particular charity hotline, you know something about their medical condition um, or about their, um, their politics. Um, you multiply that information and you find out that somebody's, you know, repeatedly called there a woman's repeatedly called her boyfriend then she calls her mother and then she calls uh, an abortion doctor and you know something about that then aggregate that kind of information across populations statisticians have shown that you can derive very um, sensitive implications from this kind of data. Um, one of the statisticians, uh, Kieran Healy, wrote a very charming article in the voice of a British um, officer looking at the data of who back in the American Revolutionary War times belonged to what organizations. And <laughs> he was able, you know, he said, look, these are the people who belong to what organizations. And if you flip it around and say, who belongs to the most organizations, then I think the guy to watch out for is Paul Revere. So, you know, just as a matter of statistics, this information can be e extremely um, revealing. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's also kind of extrapolating after the fact, right? Is it, is it sort of applying a story to the data after we knew kind of the course of history? I mean, I'm not really sure how to interpret that a little bit, but... Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a charming article, but the idea is if you want to find out who the connectors are, who the powerful people are, you can right. certainly use metadata to do that. And, yeah, you know, I military officials confirm that. Um, um, General Michael Hayden, right. used to be head of the, um, you know, used to be director of national intelligence, has said, we kill people based on metadata. You know, we use metadata to figure out where people are, who they're hanging out that's, with, are they maybe part from, of that, ISIS? Yeah, it's a That's wow. a quote. We wow. kill people based on <laughs> metadata. So I kind of think that makes a conclusive point that the metadata is important, even if it's not So if not anyone content. ever tells me that metadata is not important, I can yeah. quote him on that. So. We, yes. we, we, have, we have the video somewhere on TechDirt. You can see him wow. saying that. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty uh, pretty. Uh, I mean, I love metadata. So. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, I think lots of people do love metadata. It's just a question yeah. of who has access to it and what they're doing with it. I mean, and then, you know, at the same time, I mean, part of what came out in the debate after all of this as people were debating Section 215 was the fact that there was no evidence that it was actually 
you know, for as much information as you could get out of it, as we were just describing, yeah. there there was no evidence that it was actually ever used to for any you know right. to prevent any terrorist attacks in the U.S. Right. That's right. I mean, was it what was it used for then? Like, was was that clear? <laughs> <laughs> they had one one successful example that um, was offered up to the public, and it was yeah. uh, they discovered a, a cab driver in. San Diego, I believe, had given yep. some money to Al Shabaab, which was mm-hmm. classified, which is classified as a terrorist uh, group. Right. Is anyone yep. doing like a cost-benefit analysis on <laughs> on this work? It seems like an immense amount of data to sift through to pick out like one one actionable piece of data. <laughs> we we certainly don't know what the cost of that program yeah. is. Um, you know, and we, but we, we still have, certainly we still have phone records collection going on. There's the yeah. Hemisphere database um, that the DEA uses for um, drug enforcement where it's collecting information from AT&T. And, you know, we don't know exactly what kind of um, connection records are being collected about our contacts with foreigners right. overseas, either over the Internet or telephone. So there's still a lot of this kind of collection going on. Yeah, and and specific to Section two fifteen, right? So that that eventually resulted in the USA Freedom Act, right? Right, Which, and that um, sort of shut down the wholesale collection of this information and put some restrictions on how uh, the NSA could gather um, could gather Americans' phone records under that authority. But it didn't address gathering other kinds of records under that authority or gathering phone records under other statutes. Right. right. And and part of part of what, you know, I've sort of struggled with in all of this is and, and I guess I, I sort of know what the what the official answer is, but it doesn't make sense to me, which is, you know, why keep the details of these programs secret? Right. I mean, if you're a terrorist or a wannabe terrorist, you probably assume that this is already happening no matter what. It's it's not like if you're a terrorist and you suddenly find out about Section 215, tracking who you're calling, um, you know, that's suddenly going to change your behavior as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a lot of, you know, when you have this kind of comprehensive surveillance, it's extremely hard to escape it every single time. I think that's true as well. I mean, why don't they tell us? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that um, they might be worried that people won't support it. Right. I mean, I think that's also, isn't there a sense of this, like, the bad guys will then know what we're watching or something? Is that, is that that's part the, of the That's the justification. Right, if that's they the know we're listening right? to, we don't want to be specific, because if they know we're listening know, to this or we collect right. it here. Right, but, but again, but if, 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 but we, we're listening to everything, right? I mean, I think that's right. part, part of the point is, and, and especially even, like, I don't know, at least my impression, and there are certainly stories out there of, you know, terrorist organizations having, guidelines for for people like don't call people <laughs> because they just assume that they were naturally being tracked whether it was through well, some correct. sort of right whether it was through some sort of dragnet or through right. you know more targeted surveillance they just assume so th- it's not like this would make any real difference like the only thing it's going to cap capture are like the taxi driver in San Diego who's sending money to the Middle East, right? To a terrorist organization <laughs> in the Middle East, which like, okay, but is it, yeah. is it worth having this, you know, massive program that, that potentially violates all sorts of 
people's privacy just for the sake of catching that one taxi driver sending like 10,000 grand, you know, $10,000 or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think there's like two parts to this. One is um, how much of democracy are we willing to sacrifice? In other words, how much of public oversight of the government and of the laws that we pass are we willing to sacrifice in the name of fighting terrorism? And then I think the second issue is do these programs, which broadly collect information, actually give us a huge leg up in the fight against terrorism or are there better more targeted ways to do it that don't have all of these side effects that are really dangerous right and i mean there's also a sort of more general question of like does does a program like this that is you know massive surveillance massive dragnet surveillance how is that compatible with the fourth amendment? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like going back to the basics here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, um, for the, for the phone records program, the argument is phone records are not protected by the fourth amendment. And there's a case Smith versus Maryland from the 1970s that says that this isn't data that's protected by the fourth amendment because the phone company collects it pretty routinely and there's access to it. Uh, it's not, you know, you have to tell the operator that you're dialing, Manchester 925, so it doesn't really count. And so the argument is if collecting phone records is zero Fourth Amendment violation and you collect um, 100 million of them, that's 100 million times zero, <laughs> which equals zero Fourth Amendment violation. So so that's the argument. Um, and I think that there's a real question, I, I think, whether that's, that's accurate given what the Fourth Amendment's goal is, which is to police the power of relationship between the individual and the state. And I think also given some of the newer... Um, some of the newer uh, precedents. That argument, I think, is even, you know, they make those similar arguments when it comes to content surveillance. So Mm -hmm. we have this program, uh, which is um, where when Americans talk with foreign intelligence targets, our communications are picked up without a warrant. Um, it happens under it happens under a variety of programs, but the controversial one that comes up for renewal this year is Section 702. And right. what the um, government's argument there is, certainly Americans' communications are covered by the Fourth Amendment. That's like the most fundamental Fourth Amendment case, cats. Um, but the argument there is, well, people who are not Americans who are overseas don't have Fourth Amendment rights. And we're listening to people, we're, you know, we're targeting people who are not Americans who are overseas. And just so happens they're talking to Americans, but oh well, too bad. <laughs> There's no Fourth Amendment problem there. Yeah. Um and and then there's a whole bunch of associated issues with that, right? I mean, so there's so so well part of part of their argument then is that if they do capture like that kind of communication there's something that's called minimization right 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 and how does how does that work so the minimization rules are um approved by the um secretive fisa court and you know they change in secret so when i tell you how it works i'm telling you (laughs) how the latest iteration of rules um labeled 2015 works um, but the pro- one of the problems is the rules change in secret and they don't necessarily get released. Um, but basically, the idea behind minimization is that, um, you know, for uh, agencies like NSA and CIA, they are limited in the way they can use Americans' information. They're supposed to only use it for foreign intelligence purposes, um, and they're not supposed to share it unless it shows evidence of a crime. But um, some of this Section 702 data, these are communications with foreigners, goes directly to the FBI. 
right. um, without Americans' names blacked out or anything. And the FBI is allowed to search through it for the names of particular Americans or for um, search queries that are designed to show, um, you know, or reveal criminal activity. They do this, not only do they do it without a search warrant or probable cause, um, FBI agents can do this at an assessment stage where there's really no suspicion whatsoever. Um, Senator Wyden has called this the backdoor search loophole because ordinarily in order to get access to Americans' communications, the FBI would have to show probable cause to right. a judge and get a search warrant and the, you know this would all be eventually revealed to the American. Um, instead, what's happening is there's this vast amount of searching going on um, on a you know substantial amount of information about Americans. Recently, the government said it happens so often they can't possibly document the reasons for these searches because that would be like asking us to document our reasons every time we search Google, right. which given how much I search thing for things on the internet is pretty scary. Um, but they search it a lot, basically. Um, and then one of the things we've seen is that when they find information about people, they pretend they found it a different way. Right. So, so in a couple uh, of cases where uh, people have faced criminal charges, they've told them, oh, we got this through regular traditional FISA that's based on a warrant, when actually right. they got it through this warrantless process. And, and th th that's referred to as parallel construction, right? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's lying. Okay. Um, I think it's lying. Parallel <laughs> construction is a slightly different thing, um, okay. which I think also is lying. But 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 it ha parallel construction is like we found it this one way, and then we sort of um, we you know we sort of refound the information <laughs> following a path that's less uh, controversial. And so they did find were able to find the information that way, but it wasn't really how they got clued into it. Here okay. they just basically lied. They just said, "Okay, we got it through FISA," but they actually got I it see. through this. Maybe they maybe they got a FISA warrant too to get the same information. I don't I don't know, but right. I think yes, it's parallel construction. And I think either way, it's it's basically a misrepresentation to the court and to the defendant about how the investigation really took place. And and also part of the as I recall the the. Um, well, FBI and NSA justification for this is they call this sort of incidental collection, right? All of right. this information is incidental, which is an interesting euphemism, I guess, <laughs> for, for, yeah. for what they're I mean, doing. in the book, I talk about these words that we hear. You know, it's, it's incidental because it's incident to the um, targeting of the foreigner, and, you know, we happen to be collected if we're talking to the foreigner or, or sometimes in other cases, depending upon the technology of collection, we may have nothing to do with the foreigner um, and have our communications collected. Um, but it's incident to the effort to collect on the foreigner. But when you when you use that term incidental, it sounds like there's just a few incidents of right. it. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it's, um, it's ubiquitous. Um, so, you know, while the government won't count how many Americans get intercepted, the um, Washington Post did an analysis of a set of Section 702 data, this, this warrantless wiretapping data that um, they obtained from Snowden. They found that 9 out of 10 people in the database were not the target. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, if that's accurate, you figure for every one target, there's nine other people in the database. And that 50% of the information um, was about Americans, included right. Americans' names or identifiers or something like that. You have 90,000 targets, let's say, under Section 702. That's 
I think that, you know, around that is the most recent number from the director of national intelligence. You know, 90,000 times 10, half of that's about Americans. It's a lot of information for be to call it incidental. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely a little bit scary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that um, also just, and part of the problem with this is that it's also misleading, I think, is, you know, almost everything that, that when, when the government sort of explains these programs, they explain them in ways like that, or they use words like that, that, that make it sound, you know, or, or even just the things that we talked about earlier, just metadata, or incidental collection. Um, and it, it just feels like, to me, that that's at least a, a big part of, you know, a big part of the problem as well. The fact that they're so cagey about the language that they use, that you know, it's hard to trust anything that they say. And I don't think for the most part that they directly lie about the programs. I mean, other than, you know, in court <laughs> 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 about how they got the, how they got certain information. But, you know, when, when pressed on how these programs work, they don't lie, but they're incredibly misleading about them, right? I think that's absolutely right. And chapter two of my book is called Word Games, and it tries to sort <laughs> yeah. of dissect some of this um, creative use of language to really... Um, which ends up really hiding what actually takes place. Um, and I don't know why they, why the intelligence community takes that approach. I think that, um, you know, it may be that very few people there actually have the bigger view, you know, and can sort of take the step back and see how all of this pieces, pieces together. Um, fortunately, the public is now beginning to be able to take that broader view and get a sense of the scope of um, domestic surveillance overall. And and related to all that and, and the question of like how many people are, are sort of had their information sucked up under 702, I mean, you've certainly had, again, Senator Wyden, who comes up a lot in this discussion, um, you know, he's been asking since I think 2010 or 2011 for a, a general estimate of how many Americans have had their information sucked up under 702. And for years, the director of national intelligence, who was Jim Clapper at the time, basically refused and gave all these sort of weird excuses, including my favorite, that it would violate the privacy um, of those Americans to reveal how many had their information sucked up, which I still don't quite understand. <laughs> um, but, but you know, there had been a promise, I think, late last year that before the, the administration's changed, they would reveal that information, and then they didn't. Um, there's a new focus now, and there's been a new, re new request sent to the new... Um, director of National Intelligence, who's um, uh, Dan Coates, right? Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Um, and he had suggested during hearings for, um, you know, during his nomination hearings that he would be willing to uh, potentially reveal that information as well. But I don't think we've seen anything on that either. Um, why do you have any sense of, of why they, they won't even reveal that number? Is it just that they recognize it's so large that, that people are going to start clamoring you know for for some changes or, or is there something else to it um you know i think that they um i i think that you know the sort of the privacy argument is 
I, I think they're worried about telling the, the real number, but I also think it was, would require setting up systems in order to be able to determine who is an American and who isn't. Uh, okay. And I, I think once I you set up the, that system, there's a lot of concern about that. There, and the concern is perhaps a privacy concern and then also perhaps a liability concern. Um, I think the privacy concern is um, we're going to look at all the names we have and then we're going to do a little Google search or a little LinkedIn search or some or a little <laughs> search on the p passport database and we're going to figure out if Jennifer Granick is an American citizen or not. And if she is, we're going to put a little tab there. But have we invaded her privacy by, you know, basically putting her under this extra scrutiny? And then I think there's a secondary problem, which is um, an intent or knowledge problem. When, you know, right now, the intelligence community can say, we really have no idea how many Americans are in our database. But once they start to actually set up a system whereby they can look and see, does that mean they have the no necessary knowledge that they're collecting the information improperly? Because they know that the way they've set up the system results in a massive collection, that a substantial collection that affects Americans. Right. That's an interesting paradox, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, with. ultimately, that's the thing. That's one of the things that we need to know. I mean, I also think we need to think about this in terms of our foreign friends. Um, you yeah. know, this Section 702 is often talked about as really essential in the counterterrorism fight. But the statute is written extremely broadly. The collection can happen for any foreign intelligence purpose, which could be the price of oil um, or, you know, what is, uh, you know, what is... Um, you know, a global human rights group doing or something like that. Right. Um, and so, you know, really in this interconnected day and age where we have, you know, non-citizens data here in the United States, our data flows overseas. We've got, you know, trade of information with Europe and other areas. It seems like we need to kind of take a less provincial view of privacy um, than that, particularly where it's not about national security or counterterrorism, and think about what kind of safeguards we can put in place for our, you know, our fellow humans around the globe. And and related to that, that brings up the next topic very easily, which is, you know, we've talked about Section 215 and Section 702. The other sort of big program that's, that gets talked about a lot um, is not one that's written into the law, but it's Executive Order 12333. Um, which I guess is a, a Reagan era executive order, which as I understand it, and, and feel free to correct me, is basically anything outside of the U.S., we can spy on anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there's some new, yes, I mean, there's some numerations in there that we can spy on it for any legitimate reason that we have, whether it's national security or our interests or to help our allies or, you know. So, yeah, it basically allows for um, this, it, it enables and authorizes this very broad buying that can take place, um, you know, anytime it's foreign to foreign or takes place overseas. Yeah. And that, you know, that's come up a lot. And, and there was, you know, a quote that somebody had had put out at some point that basically said that that um, executive order 12333 was sort of the basis for for most of the NSA surveillance and the other ones, the section 215 and 702 were sort of filling in the gaps effectively. And, and I know that like, you know, there was, you know, this was also one of the one of the Snowden stories that came up when um, it was reported that um, I, I think it was the NSA, but possibly it was a partner um, intelligence organization had hacked into the data centers of um, 
Google and Yahoo? Right. The um, GCHQ, the um, the British uh, spy agency, was accused of that with the, um, you know, happy um, knowledge (laughs) of the NSA and then sharing the data. And 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 I believe that that was then that 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 sharing of the data was done under twelve triple three because they were hacking into a foreign data center. I think it was in Singapore or something like that. Yeah, I mean we've learned about a lot of government hacking that take that that's committed either by our NSA or by GCHQ in collaboration. Um, you know, sort of a lot of working together there. Um, one of the chapters in my book details some of the foreign intelligence hacking that we know about. Um, and I think more recently we've learned a lot about FBI hacking for domestic law enforcement. So government hacking is another super interesting um, area that can affect not only people's privacy, but the security of the computer networks uh, you know, worldwide. And I think we just don't know that much about how Executive Order 12333 operates. We haven't had the in-depth kind of investigations by either the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board or by Congress, which has to authorize the programs um, over Executive Order 12333, as we have with the other ones. Um, So there's still quite a lot to learn about exactly how that impacts people's privacy. Um, But certainly, if our data is flowing overseas, um, that is an opportunity for it to be opportunistically picked up under that that, um, legal authority. Right. And and speaking of the you mentioned sort of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Board uh, oversight board, they they did they had released um, reports on both 215 and 702. The one on 215 was, I think, fairly damning. The one on 702 was a little bit more accepting. Um, And they had claimed a few years ago they were working on working on one on executive order 12333. But at least as I understand it, and and we've reported on this on the site recently, they um, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board is effectively dead at this That's point. That's right. Yeah, don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right now, um, there's the the chair, you know, isn't there. There's, I think, there's two members who are still appointed out of five, so there's no quorum. Right. And we're not likely to see. Um, I mean, I can't imagine that the Trump administration is going to fast track appointments to <laughs> the the. The P-Club, as we call it, um, right. uh, when there are so many other uh, government um, uh, positions that are also unfilled. Right. And I mean, to be fair, you know, um, you know, Bush left the, the board mostly empty and, and Obama left the board empty for like the first five years or so. Yes, of, true. Of his administration, right? So it's it doesn't seem like this is you know having a privacy and civil liberties oversight board does not seem like it's a priority for for any president. <laughs> Absolutely, you're right. You know, and, and and that you're right. That is that is fair. And also, Congress hasn't been that excited about it necessarily. They have a limited um, they have a limited uh, uh, mission to look into counterterrorism surveillance, um, but they don't necessarily have a mission to look into other stuff. And some senators have even tried to change the law to limit their um, um, limit their authority even further. So um, this is something we, you know, still need to fight for. You know, if you think back in, in history, you know, we got the Church Commission after Watergate and COINTELPRO and all of that stuff. We had to learn a lot of terrible things about spying on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, before uh, the public was really ready to commit to actually looking deep into our souls and asking ourselves, are we doing the right thing? And um, I'm not sure we're there yet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, 
disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and, and you sort of briefly alluded to this at the, or mentioned this at the earlier in the podcast, but Section 702 uh, is up for renewal this year. Right. Um, uh, what's, what's going on there? Okay, so the statute has a built-in um, expiration date, which is the end of December 2017 this year. And um, that means that inertia, congressional inertia, is on the side of the reformers. Um, if the Congress has to do something if it wants any part of the Section 215 type collection to survive. And so it's a real opportunity for the public to say, um, you know, okay, you say that some of this is important, but we have shown you all of this other collateral damage that is not about national security that we can rein in. So let's do that. Um, and there's a couple particular proposals. Um, certainly one is to end the backdoor searches. So mm -hmm. don't let Section 702 be an opportunistic way for the FBI to get access to Americans' private data without a, a warrant. Um, another is to limit the intake on Section 702 from it being like general foreign intelligence purposes, which could be a lot of things, to really being very focused on national security. So weapons proliferation and counterterrorism, for example. Um, being much more rigid about throwing away information that's that's irrelevant. Um, there's been a there's a number of proposals, more transparency, obviously. Um, so there's a number of proposals on the table to um, try to bring this uh, collection program more in line with our democratic values. And if people are interested, um, you know, any of your online civil rights groups um, is going to be fighting this. And there'll be a time and when we need to just all call our senators and tell them that we support this. And there's going to be a real opportunity for grassroots activism. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, I, and I'm hopeful about that. Um, I, I, I am, too. I, I always have that bit of cynicism, having, you know, having seen some of these play out before and even 702 renewal a few years back, um, where basically Congress ignored it until the last week and then suddenly there were a couple speeches on the floor that were just like if we don't renew this we're all gonna die yeah and so you know um so i i i worry about those kinds of <laughs> things i, I think we're living in a different political age now I though mike i mean we certainly are hope in, so <laughs> we are living in an age of political activism people are engaged yeah. um, because they realize now that things that they cared about that they took for granted whether it was federal funding for public schools or um, an honest government or you know surveillance that's appropriately targeted at terrorists and not at political opponents you know all of this stuff is now on the table yeah. And I think that, um, you know, we're seeing a level of engagement, um, right and left wing um, in America that I think is really um, heartening. And I feel like when people understand the connection of surveillance to, to, you know, civil liberties and political power, the idea that if your enemies have information about you, they can um, discredit you and neutralize you, I feel like people are going to come forward. And people are going to say, we can't have this rampant surveillance going on anymore and just feel like, OK, we trust the government's not going to come after us because we don't have anything to hide. And, you know, yeah. why would they bother? I don't think people are looking at the government now as like nobody's going to bother. <laughs> yeah. I mean, somewhat surprisingly and and uh, the fact that um, all of the news about 
uh, Michael Flynn that led to his resignation as national security advisor that was leaked. Um, you know, much of that information was supposedly collected under 702. And so you suddenly have people who are supporters of, of Flynn and the president who suddenly out of nowhere, <laughs> after years of not caring or, or actively misleading in some cases about Section 702, suddenly claim to be um, concerned about the nature of Section 702. So, so there is also this sort of strange bedfellows. Yeah, it's really strange. I mean, I think, you know, there in that case, Flynn was supposedly talking with the Russian ambassador who and the Russian ambassador is usually here on U.S. soil. He's the ambassador to the United right. States. It was probably collected under traditional FISA, which means there hmm. was a warrant, <laughs> you know, right. based on probable cause with all the, you know, I, I, I as a civil libertarian, I can't believe I'm about to say these words, <laughs> but all the safeguards of traditional FISA. Um, and, and yet there was this real concern. And I think that I think ultimately the concern, though, makes sense, which is why was Flynn's name bandied about? You know, it's like, right. OK, well, so, yes, sometimes Americans are going to be intercepted. But who gets access to that information and that gets to leak it for political advantage against Flynn or the or the Trump administration? And um, I think I mean, if you look at the rules and you think about it, it makes great sense why Flynn's name was there. You needed to know his name in order to understand the foreign intelligence import of those particular conversations. Right. But the idea that that information was then available for somebody to leak, that is upsetting. And I think yeah. there the, the Republicans are absolutely right. That's one of the concerns about having this information be made available. You know, similarly, I think Trump's claim that Obama wiretapped Pid the <laughs> the um, you know Trump Tower that right. you know that the system doesn't allow that that didn't happen but these kinds of concerns are are you know waking up people you know factually correct or or not I think it's waking up people who previously were not tuned into surveillance and I for one welcome them to the yeah. public debate yeah no a absolutely and I think you know for anyone listening to this if you don't pay close attention to these debates. Um, I think it's, it's important. It's going to become very important later this year, certainly, to, to pay attention and to to speak up and you know and, and you know follow the different civil liberties groups that that are working on this stuff um, and and make sure that you're aware of you know when to call Congress and and things like that because uh, hopefully hopefully there can be a real difference uh, made this time around. Absolutely. Um, and so on a on a final note, I guess as we're as we're closing out on on time here. Um, we haven't really discussed sort of the technology internet industry um, and sort of their relationship to all of this because it, but but I think it's kind of intertwined. Absolutely. Um, and it's worth kind of discussing how that has played out. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why massive surveillance is possible, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is because private companies are collecting a lot of data about us for their own business purposes, um, you know, and to provide us with services that we that we love and value. And when companies collect this information about us to, you know, have our email or to provide us with advertising or whatever it is, um, all the government needs to do at that point is come by with the appropriate legal process, whatever it is, and say, thank you very much for having gathered this for me. Please hand it over. Right. Um, you know, and companies have, all the com all the big internet companies have, you know, you could point to every one of them and say, look where they've stood up for users. They've 
um, challenged gag orders. They've resisted um, warrantless wiretapping. They've um, found out about government uh, collection and encrypted more data. Um, and you can point at every single one of them and say, look at all these times they haven't done anything. And nobody's really put their neck out and said Section 702 is dangerous, you know, no, and, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that, um, you know, companies are kind of in a squeeze here um, between their users and, and the government. Um, I think every company deserves some kudos for the, you know, pro-civil um, liberties work that they've done and the transparency work that they've done. But I also think that um, it's time for the industry to stand up and say, this doesn't protect our American users enough, and it doesn't protect our um, international users at all, and we want to see serious reform to Section 702, and we're willing to put our name on it. Um, there's this reform government surveillance coalition that a number of the bigger internet companies belong to. Um, I think that's really important. Um, but I think that if we really want to see a change, I, I think that they, um, I think that they could come out um, a lot stronger um, on particular, you know, and sort of say we support these particular um, changes that we think are going to help people around the world. Yeah. No, I, I think that would would be a big deal. And one of the aspects which you know, you mentioned especially about foreign users that I, I don't think really gets enough coverage every once in a while. People will mention it. You know, the fact that, you know, if these things stay in place, you know, foreign users of American services trust those services less and less and certainly are open to um, alternatives. So there's there's sort of an economic argument there. And related to that even, um, you know, all of this surveillance stuff has, has led to calls by um, you know, certain governments to, you know, sort of force companies to localize data and not allow it to, you know, to, to go elsewhere, but then <laughs> potentially using that for surveillance in their own countries as well. And it almost justif justifies, you know, uh, foreign surveillance of, of these individuals and, and weakens privacy, you know, around the globe effectively. Yeah, for some of these um, people, their data is safer with the United States government than it was is with their own government, Right. Um, and which is too bad. But I think ultimately there's this feeling, like particularly in Europe, of distrust about U.S. collection. I think there are business entities that really want to, you know, smooth that over so we can get a new data sharing agreement in place and business can go on. But I'm not sure that the uh, European courts, particularly the CJEU, the EU Court of Justice, is going to look at the way that the United States treats Europeans' data and say that it complies with their, um, with their data protection requirements and their privacy requirements. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I brought it up at the no, last no. minute. <laughs> no, no, it's it's yeah. a really good topic, and, and we've sort of discussed uh, uh, some of that with with your colleague Daphne Keller. Um, oh yeah, uh, but I think your point, which is that you know American companies have a really important role to play here, and there are you know certainly I think they deserve kudos for some things, but I think also it's time where we're I you know I as a user of all these services am looking at them and I'm like okay let's stand up and get really strong and you need to talk loud about how this yeah. needs to change inside the halls of congress yeah yeah no I, I think that's important um so anyways you know as i said at the beginning like we could talk about this for for hours there's there's you know <laughs> so many other things that we could go into but um since we don't have that time um let's just sort of uh, close this out but do, do you have sort of any 
closing thoughts on this in, in terms of what you want to leave the listeners here with to, to think about these issues? Um, I mean, oh, mercenary wise, please buy my book. Um, but aside <laughs> yes, from that, yes. but aside from that, I do firmly believe that we can make surveillance better. I am optimistic um, that about this country and about our form of government, and I'm optimistic that people can understand why surveillance is dangerous and can care, that we can communicate the importance of that to our legislators, and that we can make reforms to these laws which will not make us um, unsafe, but will protect us from, you know, won't, won't make us unsafe from terrorism, but will protect us from all the dangers of political retaliation and race discrimination and religious, um, you know, segregation and those sorts of things that that surveillance can can be used for. So I I am optimistic, and I think this year, 2017, is the tip of that um, effort. And I think now's the time when everybody's so activated and so aware of the dangers of out of um, control government that um, you know we really can start to make this movement a reality. So I I am looking forward to the next couple of months. <laughs> um, yes, cool. yes, some optimism. Think, yes, <laughs> it's good to conclude a, a podcast like this on, on on some optimism. And and just as a reminder for everyone, um, the book is called American Spies, uh, and it's by Jennifer Granick. And it's a, as I said, it's a very, very good, very, very thorough book. Um, it's it's great whether you know this stuff already uh, or pay attention to this stuff or not. Uh, I think in both cases, there's there's plenty to learn from the book. It's an excellent book. And Jennifer, thank you so much. For, thank you. This for was really fun joining us and, and having this conversation. I think it was it was great. And thank you to everyone who's listening. And we'll be back next week. Okay, and uh, we're back, <laughs> uh, as happens sometimes uh, when we try and record this podcast uh, a few days or maybe a week before it's actually going to be posted. Things happen uh, in the interim. <laughs> it's a, a risk uh, that we take in trying to get these ready for you uh, before the day that they are posted. And in this case, we recorded... Uh, last Wednesday, I believe, and on Friday, uh, fairly big news broke about Section 702, which we discussed in the podcast and about the efforts to uh, renew it or, or possibly block the renewal of 702. And uh, so on Friday afternoon, uh, I think the story was first broken by Charlie Savage at the New York Times, announced that the uh, that the NSA was... Uh, I don't know if modifying is the the correct description, but but they would no longer be collecting about uh, information, and um, so we have brought Jennifer Granick back to discuss this <laughs> because it's uh, I think a, a really big and important change, um, and I was about to start to dig into the weeds and explain what it is, but you're going to probably be better at that than I am. So sure. uh, <laughs> Jennifer, well, <laughs> welcome back. Thank uh, you. Can you explain what happened? Yeah, so um, Charlie broke this news that the NSA was going to stop doing something very controversial that we call about collection. And the idea is that, as people may expect, if someone is a foreign intelligence target, when Americans talk with that target, 
um, those communications are collected. So if I'm talking with the president of France. Um, but what many people did, do not know or do not understand is that the way that NSA conducts this collection, um, it also is able to grab messages about that foreign intelligence target. Um, right. So, so if if you and I, so so if we're saying that the president of France is a foreign intelligence target, and you and I were emailing about the president of France, then that those emails would be collected. Is that those emails could be collected? And and so the problem is, there's a couple caveats to that. One is they're not supposed to be collecting any purely domestic communications. Okay. Um, but it's possible because of the technology they use that those communications are collected. And, you know, if I'm talking with just a friend of mine who's a non-citizen overseas or who they don't know is an American but is overseas, and we um, are talking about the president of France, those could be collected. Now, the um, government has assured people that that collection doesn't take place based on people's proper names or any kind of keyword searches. It requires that there be some kind of selector in the email. And selectors are things like email addresses or phone numbers although those are not exclusively the things that are selectors. Um, but the idea is it would be okay for me to talk about the president of France, but if I had that person's, um, you know, if I had their email address or, or phone number or some other thing that the government has found to be closely associated with the, um, you know, with the president of France, then my messages could be collected. And this about collection is very controversial. Um, it's not generally what people think of, about um, as foreign intelligence collection. It brings into the government coffers messages by totally innocent people completely unconnected to foreign intelligence matters just because they're talking about the foreign intelligence matter. And then there's some real questions about how those, um, you know, more, how those private messages are used after the fact. And so the big announcement um, on Friday and always interesting that it's always late in the afternoon on a Friday. <laughs> <Of course laughs> the big we're, we're... announcement on Friday is that the NSA is going to stop conducting this about collection um, because of violations of the FISA court's rules for how the government is supposed to protect American privacy in this repository of information. Right. Um, and that's big on multiple levels. Um uh one the sort of about collection was was part you know probably well i don't know uh, definitely a, a part of the most controversial part of of that program um and again you know as you said was was part that people probably understood the least um and you know we had known about the about collection is did we learn about the about collection from the snowden leaks or was it something else that that finally sort of revealed that it was my understanding is that the New York Times was able to ferret it out based on some references in the Snowden documents and the New York okay. Times um, reporter Charlie Savage was the um, first person I believe to identify this as an issue in 2013 but it was based on information obtained from the Snowden documents right and and there's been evidence that um, this about collection has been abused in the past, right? 
Well, you know, I mean, I think one view is it is itself an abuse. <laughs> yes, fair enough. <laughs> because you're spying on people who are not foreign intelligence targets. Um, right. Just because they're talking about foreign intelligence matters. Um, and then I think the second part is, is the answer is yes, because um, about collection is one of the ways that non- foreign intelligence information gets into the NSA's hands. So it's a kind of complicated technology how they do this, but um, there's uh, wiretapping that takes place on the internet backbone, looking at the stream of internet data that flows through network gateways. And people who follow this closely might be familiar with this type of collection. It was um, you know, for it was the the basis of the um, EFF's lawsuit. Um, you know, re, re, based on information revealed by the New York Times back in two thousand five, that there were a secret room built at the AT and T Folsom Street facility, funneling um, information into NSA um, filtering technology to pull out information from the from the stream of messages. And uh, we've been calling this uh, collection upstream collection. Right. And it involves the search of you know, all of the flow of messages. And then what's been happening is the way that this uh, filtering technology works is that rather than pull out individual messages, it pulls out communications transactions. And that means that um, oftentimes, or I don't know how often, we, we don't know the details, but that what that means is that um, multiple communications, some of which have nothing to do with foreign intelligence information, are getting pulled out of the stream of messages and stored by the NSA based on there being a foreign intelligence selector either to, from, or about you know, either to, from, or in the content of one of the right. messages in the transaction. Um, and this, this uh, about collection and how it interacts with the multiple communications transactions was the subject of a 2011 FISA court opinion by Judge John Bates, where Judge Bates dis learned that this was what was going on. This was not how the FISA court understood the surveillance to be taking place. Um, the court saw the potential for lots of innocent Americans' communications to end up collected as a result. Um, and the court said, you know, this is unconstitutional. This violates the Fourth Amendment. And so the, um, the national security establishment scrambled and said, okay, well, we're going to put in place these after-the-fact protections to uh, protect American privacy and, you know, make sure that these communications transactions we're grabbing are, you know, we're not using them um, and, and it in a bad way and it won't be unconstitutional. And the court, um, the judge, having been told by the NSA that if you stop this kind of collection, we won't be able to do any collection and we will miss, you know, things that are to and from foreign intelligence targets and thus jeopardize national security, the court let the um, collection go forward. And this was 2011 in secret. Um, and so it appears that what we learned now is that those rules that the court put in place in 2011 have not been obeyed. Hmm. And that um, the way that the government's been searching this repository of um, multi-communication transactions is not in 
is not consistent with the rules that the court set up and uh, is and and that the uh, that upon reporting this to the FISA court they were unable to figure out a way to fix it and so you know now they have to stop right and um, so, so there are a whole bunch of points that might be worth digging in there and I'm trying to keep this relatively short um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so one is that the NSA sort of self-reported this this problem right yes that's, that's what people are saying which is interesting um and in some ways feels good but in some ways feels scary because if they didn't report it we wouldn't know about this right absolutely i mean i don't th feel very confident about self-reporting that takes place in the year 2017 telling me about violation of rules that were set up in 2011. <laughs> right. I mean, if that that doesn't feel good to me, that feels like they've been messing it up for six years and we're only finding out about it now. Right. Um, um, you know, yeah. and, and self-reporting, you know, why did they self-report? Why did they self-report now? Yeah. Um, is it because Section 215 is, or rather, I'm sorry, Section 702, the legal authority for this collection is coming up for renewal at the end of this year, and so they knew that Congress was going to be taking a closer look at it? Um, is it because, you know, of the change of administration? Right. Is it because there's of a change of personnel? Like, we don't really know why the, um, why, why they came forward. And, you know, as you said, it shows that violations can take place and nobody's going to catch them yeah. unless nobody's looking over their shoulder nobody's going to catch them so it's just basically an honor system thing yeah i mean so my first reaction upon hearing this and this is just sort of pure gut reaction was that it had to do with the upcoming renewal debate which we we talked about earlier in the the recording that we did last week um you know that that maybe this was at le at the very least some sort of attempt to stave off a complete you know uh blockage of of the 702 renewal yeah especially in light of how skeptical of this kind of surveillance um some republicans seem to be now that the um you know now that republicans are in control yeah um i mean do you I mean, this is just sort of uh, uh asking you to pull out the crystal ball which you know who knows what's going to happen but i mean do you think that that this change would have any impact on on the renewal i mean i think it it's definitely going to have impact on the renewal debate um okay. uh, you know i don't know what's going i don't i don't i don't know what i thought was going to happen before and i don't know <laughs> what's going to happen now i mean i predict that there's going to be reforms but i'm a partisan here so right um i think that you know the fact that i think there's going to be reforms is that's exactly why i'm working so hard on, <laughs> on it so right. don't listen to me but uh i think that you know when you find out that this kind of collection was taking place unlawfully. They weren't following the rules, rules that were put in place in order to try to make the collection constitutional. And we don't know how long they've been messing it up for. Um, and then they have to come forward and self-report because there's no overseer that caught right. the problem. And Which, this, yeah. you know, the, I think that has a big impact on how you structure your surveillance authorities. Um, yeah. And I also think, you know, basically they've been telling us that the intelligence community has been telling the public, telling Congress, telling the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, we absolutely need to do about collection or else we lose this serious foreign intelligence value.
Right. And here, you know, they're saying like, you know what? We'll live without it. And I think that that also makes a difference in the debate because it's something that, that, you know, that civil libertarians and reformers have been saying, which is um, we need to be circumspect about these authorities because there are dangers and downsides to them as well. And it can't be collect it all and cross your fingers and hope that nothing bad happens. And it seems like, you know, basically the intelligence community and at least one of the judges on the FISA court is kind of thinking about it the same way. Like, you know, it's not going to be we do everything we possibly can and, um, you know, just throw caution to the wind. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think um, that was a good explanation. I hit on a bunch of the points I wanted to raise. But the, the, uh, um, yeah, just the fact that that they had said before repeatedly, effectively, that, that they couldn't stop the about collection and now suddenly they're okay with it. Yeah. Which, did raise one other issue a couple of people brought i mean we have the the ultra cynical people who um are just like well they don't they don't believe it <laughs> they think that um the nsa will keep doing it you know i i think that the nsa um at least and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this but you know i i think they're i don't want to say honest because that's not the right word um but i i think they do sort of you know they will if they say they're stopping this, that does mean that they're stopping it. They are often misleading or sort of, you know, uh, they will misdirect yeah. <laughs> and get people to believe something that isn't, you know, quite clear because of their choice of words. But if they say they're stopping this, I believe they're stopping it. I agree with that. I mean, they don't need to say they're stopping this. They don't need right. to have brought this forward. I think, you know, but I think that the cynical view, you know, the, I think the cynical view that makes sense is that the reason why they're coming forward now is because... Um, either uh, A, this type of collection isn't that helpful to them anymore because increased encryption or something means they can't read the contents of emails as well, so it's not that valuable, so it's okay to shut it down. Or B, um, they have replicated this capacity through another uh, legal authority so they can collect this information more readily overseas through Executive Order 12333 without all the FISA court oversight and PCLOB interest and congressional interest in Section 702 authority. And so they're just going to collect it another less transparent way or, you know, both (laughs) or something like that. So I (laughs) think that's the... I think that's the cynical point point of view yeah. that that I, you know ultimately what this means for American privacy isn't as big a deal as it sounds. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think that's definitely a big concern, and I think that 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 you know yourself and a few other people have have raised that that um, you know this is in some ways both a big deal and maybe not as big not as big a deal as it as it could have been. Um, you know, if this had happened a few years ago, maybe it would have been a big deal. Now the fear is that they've they figured out ways around it or that this wasn't that useful anyway so they could jettison it and appear to be um you know somewhat responsive to, to civil liberties concerns uh, six years later um but you know maybe not not really so um so i think that's that's a pretty good summary um given all that uh do you want to give some any kind of last word on, on kind of what you think about 
just you know about what's happened over the past couple of days i mean it's just it's a site where <laughs> you know when you have an exciting uh, field <laughs> of study just a lot of exciting stuff happens i mean a, a couple of things i'll say um number one when i read this news my reaction to it was wow like yeah. stuff like this doesn't happen every day in surveillance where you have this major very controversial um, you know, surveillance practice that people have been pointing a finger at and saying, this is a problem, this is a problem. And then the government just comes forward and goes, you know what? It is a problem. Um, we're not going to do it anymore. So I think that's a really big deal. I, I um, mean, has that, has that ever happened before? Uh, <laughs> trying to think through uh, that, you know, without being, I mean, I guess in this case, they were sort of forced to, but, but. Well, you know, you put the pressure on. You yeah. know, and it's like you put the pressure on and and, and that pressure can create um, changes, um, even though it's hard to point to any one sure. thing and say the change occurred for occurred for this reason. Okay. Um, but this is why it's important for, you know, reporters like yourself and lawyers like myself to, you know, be on the case about these things. Um, that having been said, I think there's a couple of uh, things that still need to be known, like exactly what are they stopping doing? Are they still doing about communicate about collection when it's foreign or foreign to foreign? Mm -hmm. um, I think another question is, you know, if they can filter out Americans international, you know, if they, it's like if they can fail, figure out, okay, this is effect, you know, we're not going to do this for Americans or we're, you know, we have this about collection. It suggests that they're able to count you know, and tell us how many communications were being collected by about communication, how many communications yeah. are one end foreign, in other words, where there's an American as a party. Um, it just, if you know, if you can filter out this stuff, it suggests that there's, you know, ways you can compare the take pre yeah. and post change and get some estimates about how much this is affecting us. Right, which was one of the things that we had discussed in, in the, the earlier part of the podcast about, you know, uh, Senator Wyden in particular has been asking for years, um, you know, how many Americans' information is collected. And, and more recently, there have been a couple of times where there have been suggestions that they are going to give an answer. That was the other thing that I did wonder if, if this change was brought about by them actually finally doing that and, and trying to... To, to figure out what that information is and, and having sort of an oh shit moment when they, <laughs> yeah. they looked at it and said, this is this is not going to look good when we reveal it. And, yeah, and some people have gonna... suggested that, that, you know, when they started trying to figure it out, it was just that, you know, put them in a position where they knew stuff that they just, you know, couldn't know and still be in compliance with the with the statute, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, if you're knowingly collecting information, you're, you're not supposed to. I don't, I don't know, you know, how that happened. What I know is that I think they said they're not going to give us an estimate of how many Americans are affected oh, okay. at this point. Um, you know, is there going to be a remedy for these Fourth Amendment violations? Because, yeah. you know, not following the, these rules were put in place in order to make the program compliant with the Fourth Amendment. If they're not following the rules, then it seems like they're violating the Fourth Amendment. What's the what's the remedy for that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's an interesting I think that's an interesting problem. And then and then ultimately, overall, as I said, you know, just I think this opens up a real opportunity for a much more mature conversation about surveillance um, instead of this mythological faith that the more we collect, the safer we are. 
It right. seems like there's this opportunity now for a conversation where we understand that collecting everything possible is not necessarily the right thing to do. It doesn't necessarily lead to good intelligence, and it puts people's civil liberties in danger as well. And so we need to be more um, thoughtful about how we do this stuff, and I think that's very big news. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we, we can actually have that conversation. That would be really, really useful. Um, I also hope in the uh, 24 hours between when we're recording this and we put this out, (laughs) nothing else breaks. (laughs) You'll have to have me back. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So if you see a frantic email from me, um, (laughs) we'll see. But but I I think that should be the hopefully the the biggest news between when we recorded the original. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for for sticking around. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And being willing to to do this uh, additional thing. It's it is a Again, a really, really interesting discussion and uh, um, things are changing in real time. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks again. And um, uh, that's that's it. <laughs> All right. Bye. So we'll see everybody in Congress as we fight this out for the rest of the year. There we go. All right. All thanks. right. Thank you. Huh. Grab a shovel and dig up the cat. Huh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. Huh. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat. Huh. To grab a shovel and dig up the cat.